Especially because I didn't tell you ahead of time what thing it was. So it'd be great if you read every Encyclopedia Brown book, watched every <laughs> Scooby-Doo episode, and just in case, you know, you watched a couple episodes of Veronica Mars or something, or read some Nancy <laughs> Drew books and some boxcar children. <laughs> I just... Yeah, it would be totally crazy if I did all those things to prep for this. Well, wouldn't that be super weird and not a normal thing to do? And not exactly <laughs> what you've done. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, fellow sleuths, to Meddling Adults, a game show where we grab our dog collars and go head-to-head to test our wits against the prowess of fictional young detectives for charity. I'm your host, Mike Schubert, and I am notoriously bad at solving children's mysteries, which is why I am safely behind the judges' table, letting others solve those mysteries instead. This episode is a very special one. It's another one of the people who are close to me in my life battling it out. This time, it's the best man and, I guess, the best woman from my wedding. Damn right. It's my sister, Megan Fruhoff, and my best man, Johnny Frolicstein, Megan and Johnny, how is it going? It's going so, so great. great. Uh oh. <laughs> Good. You guys said that in complete perfect unison. We're both so great. <laughs> so I'm very excited to make this happen. We are going to be covering some episodes of Scooby Doo, the new 2002 reboot series, What's New Scooby Doo, in this episode of Meddling Adults. Before we get into the rules of how the game works, though, are either of you big mystery people? Meg, I don't know if you were a big mystery person growing up. I feel like we watched some Scooby-Doo and stuff, but I don't remember you like devouring them as a child. Well, my AOL screen name used to be Shooby-Doo22, so I'm adequately prepared for this. (laughs) I don't stand a chance. I like to read mystery books. I have a love-hate relationship with them, though, because I feel like I always need to read them like really, really fast. I don't like to go to bed in the middle of it. So I like to read mystery books, but they usually keep me up until I finish reading them. I recently bought a bunch of old Agatha Christie novels and have been kind of working my way through those. So I read Encyclopedia Brown growing up and I watched Scooby-Doo growing up. And when you told me you were doing this podcast, I was excited about it. And I've listened to most of the episodes and I think I've gotten like two of them right of all. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be bad. Well, maybe I'll have beginner's luck because I haven't watched a Scooby-Doo in forever. Well, let's see. So here is how the game is going to work. I will be recapping three mysteries from the esteemed children's video television program, Scooby-Doo, specifically what's new Scooby-Doo. Neither of you have seen these mysteries ahead of time. I'll lay out all of the clues. I'll ask you for your accusations. Each correct guess of the culprit, their means, their motive will earn you points, but there's also bonus points at stake. If your guess matches my incorrect guess, you will earn a Misery Loves Company bonus point. And if you do anything particularly funny, like your guess is completely ridiculous and makes me laugh, you throw out something that makes me chuckle, I'm going to give away some bonus points because this year has been uh, interesting, to say the least. We could all use a couple bonus points. Yes, we could all use some more bonus points in our lives. And if the score is tied at the end of these three rounds, we'll break the tie with the only fitting way, which is a sudden death riddle, but we'll see if it even comes to that. But before we put the pedal to the metal and get into the mysteries, what charities are you two playing for? Johnny, who are you playing for today? I'm going to be playing for the Houston Food Bank. I lived in Houston for eight years, and at the time that we're recording, Houston is just starting to warm up after the deep freeze. In spite of that, there are a lot of people in immediate need of food, given that a lot of folks' food 
that they had in store was completely spoiled. So playing for the Houston Food Bank to try to send a little help down that way. That's fantastic. If you win, you will officially have done more for Texas than Ted Cruz, which is pretty <laughs> sweet. Wow. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way, but you're so right. I didn't go to Cancun either. I wanted to, but I thought better of it. <laughs> Megan, who are you playing for? Okay, so I'm playing for a charity called New Story, and they are a charity that is working to tackle homelessness. And one of the reasons I'm playing for them is because they work with this other company called Icon, which is founded by a couple guys that actually went to college with my husband. And they are building 3D printed homes in collaboration with New Story, which I just think is awesome. That's fantastic. Both great organizations. So now we can get into the first mystery. The first Scooby-Doo mystery that we will be tackling is called Gentlemen, Start Your Monsters, which is almost a pun. (laughs) Close enough. (laughs) It's almost there. They didn't say engines. They said a different (laughs) word. So as you can guess, this is a racing-themed episode of Scooby-Doo. We first see a NASCAR driver named Champ Truman racing, and while he's doing his time trial, he is attacked by a skeleton monster that is driving a skeleton-themed monster truck on the track. Is he wearing sunglasses and smoking a cigarette? That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) He is not. He does have a helmet on, and everything on the monster truck is skeleton-themed. The stick shift has a little skull on it, so it's very thematically well put together. But he ends up ramming this car off the road, and it's a big scene, and then it cuts to the gang the next day, driving in Gainesville, Florida, for the Gainesville 500. (laughs) Are you for real? They picked a real place and they picked Gainesville? They picked Gainesville, home of the University of Florida, Go Gator, and yeah, they're doing the uh, Gainesville 500, and Fred is a competitor. He's a NASCAR racer now, apparently. (laughs) Oh, multi-talented. This is the most ridiculous start to a mystery. It's pretty fantastic. I appreciate that Encyclopedia Brown, which does take place in fictional Florida, now we're getting a crossover where we're getting a Scooby-Doo episode in real city in Florida. So this podcast is just becoming more and more Florida-centric. I mean, I don't know anything about racing, but do they have an actual race in Florida? Isn't Daytona in Florida? Like Daytona 500? Yeah, Daytona Beach, Florida, for sure, Uh yes. Ah, there it is. Yeah, that's what I thought. So Fred is the driver. Daphne is the crew chief, which I think is pretty sweet. She, of course, gets mansplained by a rival crew chief. This guy's name is Mike Fury. He is the crew chief <laughs> for one of the drivers named Ricky. Is he related to Guy Fury? Oh, oh bonus point to Megan for the Guy Fieri joke, though. <laughs> <laughs> bonus point has been awarded. <laughs> Yeah, does he have white spiky hair? He doesn't have white spiky hair, but he does have spiky hair. It's black spiky hair. So I guess the show was prophetic. I mean, Guy's hair would be like that if he didn't dye it. Mm -hmm. And the world would be a worse place if he didn't dye it. For sure. That goes without saying. (laughs) To be clear, you said Fury, right? Not Fieri. Yes, like (laughs) anger. Mike Fury, (laughs) anger. (laughs) So this guy, of course, is instantly my suspect because he's the first person that we've met. But he tries to mansplain to Daphne how being a crew chief works, and she tells him off, which is pretty great. Love her standing up for herself. Fred then is doing a practice run on the course, just driving around in his race car, and he gets attacked by the skeleton driver in the big skeleton monster truck. 
Fred is able to drive and escape safely to the parking lot. And when he pulls into a spot and gets out of his car, he is met by a rival racer named Burr Batson. And he is in a big red monster truck. And he starts talking smack to Fred about how Fred is just some amateur racer and he should leave this to the pros. And he is going to beat Fred like he did in the race called the Enduro Slam 5000 in Mexico. This is not relevant to the mystery, but I just could not let that detail go away. The two of them raced each other in a race called the Enduro Slam 5000. 5000 what? 5000 feet? Laps? Miles? <laughs> when they like call it the Daytona or Indianapolis whatever 500, they're talking about the number of miles. So like, yes. oh. am I to presume that this was a 5000 mile race? I mean, that's why it's the Enduro Slam. Oh. <laughs> uh... Oh, yeah. Are those like the longer ones they do in Europe? I guess. That's all I can assume. 5,000 miles feels like a lot. But if you did drive 5,000 miles, I would drive 5,000 more so that I could be <laughs> the, the man who drove 5,000 miles. To <laughs> Gonna give myself a bonus point for that. Incredible reference. Uh, scores now one to zero to one. I'm in the mix. Wow, I suck. <laughs> So Daphne then asks Burr if he has anything to do with the skeleton driver, you know, monster car, monster car, maybe he's the suspect here. But Burr says that he has nothing to do with it. He says that the skeleton driver has been knocking out the best drivers out of the race. And Champ Truman, that guy from the intro, who's supposed to be this legendary racer, retired out of fear. Feels like a smart decision from Champ. So later that night, the gang is sleeping at the track because Fred has converted the mystery machine into an RV with the push of a button on a remote control. Some rooms pop out of it and they're sleeping in the mystery machine now. Seems feasible. Mm -hmm. Super normal stuff. While they are there, they see some other people who are also staying in RVs and two people there are Jimmy and Cindy. They are kids. They say that their dad is one of the racers and he taught them everything that they know about racing. But the gang does notice that in the window of their RV is the silhouette of what looks like a man watching TV. So Velma asks, oh, is that your dad? And they say, yeah. And then the gang looks and they notice that this silhouette is just perfectly still watching TV, which they find to be a bit strange. The person's just not moving at all. Hmm. They go to sleep and they are woken up in the night by the skeleton driver racing around the track. Fred decides that they should look into this and he starts to say... Gang, I think it's time that we, and Shaggy, in peak, I'm getting too old for this shit, says, yeah, we know, split up and look for clues, gotcha, we'll see you after the monster attacks us, come on, Scoob, which I love breaking the fourth wall in the show, because that is literally always what happens, they break up into Shaggy and Scooby, and then the other three, and then the monster finds Shaggy and Scooby, and then they all get together after a chase scene, I'm loving that Shaggy in season three of this reboot is like, look, we all know it's about to happen. Let's just get on with it. <laughs> that is so good. He's like a grizzled vet. <laughs> yeah. The monster won't come until we split up. So we might as well do it now. <laughs> so Shaggy and Scooby, of course, get distracted by free food. There's a bunch of free pizza out. So they start to get it and pile it into Fred's car. Before they pile it into Fred's car, they're using his NASCAR car to do this. You see the skeleton driver creep in the shadows and place something into the back seat of Fred's car and then run away. But Shaggy and Scooby don't notice this. 
Now, then we see Fred, Velma, and Daphne, who are looking around the car garage. They see Jimmy and Cindy's dad's car, which has a big Jimmy and Cindy sticker decal on the hood. So I guess his sponsor is his children? <laughs> they're independently wealthy. <laughs> Maybe they're child actors. Ooh, I like the theory. Yeah, yeah. I bet you Mary-Kate and Ashley's parents had the same shit on their car. <laughs> so while they're in the garage, they go to the driver's locker for this car. And when they open it, there's a crash test dummy inside. And it falls out of the locker, which is, again, a bit strange. But before they can look further into this, they hear... What is the chasing developing where the skeleton driver is now chasing Shaggy and Scooby? So chasing happens, Shaggy and Scooby end up being safe, and we cut to the next day. Getting ready for the race, it's the afternoon. Jimmy, the kid, is inside the driver's seat of Fred's car. Cindy's in the passenger seat, and Fred is kind of joking along with the kids. They're, like, pretending to drive the car while it's in park. Mike Fury comes back, and he comes up to Daphne, and he says, oh, you're trying out new drivers? Well, they couldn't be any worse than you, you know, because Daphne's a girl, so she can't drive. Also not a driver. She's the crew chief. Right. She's the crew chief. So Daphne says to him, oh, go torque something. And then Mike Fury makes this noise that I literally cannot describe. So instead, I'm just going to play an audio clip of it. But the noise that he emits to being told to go torque something is pretty fantastic. Oh, go torque something. <gasps> so he just goes, <gasps> and then leaves. Uh, <laughs> that's the only proper response to being told that. So yeah. that's my experience. <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> I mean, sick burn, Daphne. It's pretty good. So Fred jokes with the kids that, oh, do you need phone books to reach the pedals? Ha ha ha. Cindy pushes back against this saying, hey, we know a lot about cars because of our dad. And then as they're storming off, Jimmy says, you'll see during the race, which is a bit strange of them to say. Okay, wait a minute. We haven't met their dad yet, right? We have not met their dad yet. We've just seen the silhouette of what they said was their dad inside the RV watching TV. Right. And what kind of car had the decal? Just a, another one of the NASCAR cars. Okay, not another monster truck. No, not a monster truck. A regular NASCAR racing car. Okay, okay, okay. So it becomes the evening. The race is about to start. And just after it gets started... The cars are driving, and Fred's car is right next to Burr's car, the guy who had the red monster truck. And somehow, despite them driving these very loud race cars, they are having banter between each other. Burr starts taunting Fred in the middle of the race, and they can just hear each other. And he drives away. Then Fred tries to chat up Jimmy and Cindy's dad, who is driving the other car, but he just, he has a mirror visor on his helmet, so you can't see his face, and he just doesn't turn his head to acknowledge Fred's existence. So he drives off, and then the race continues. So race is going on. Daphne gets all ready for a pit change, where they drive in, they change the tires and stuff like that. Before they come into the pit, Mike Fury is in the neighboring pit, and he asks Daphne if she's going to use a curling iron on the lug nuts, and... Making fun of this man for being a misogynistic jerk, she says, curling iron jokes should not be made by men with ridiculous hairstyles because he has this absurd spiky hair. So love that she is putting him down for his bad hair while he tries to make a hair-related insult. Go Daphne. Fuck 
Yeah, Daphne. <laughs> just don't take any of his shit. It's really good. Fred's car comes in. They do a perfect pit change. And Ricky, the driver for Mike Fury's team, doesn't have as good of a pit change. And after he drives off, Mike Fury is very upset, living up to his last name. And he says, ding, dang it. Whatever it takes, Fred isn't going to beat my Ricky. And then Velma notes, huh, seems like this guy will do anything to win. And then we cut to the next scene. The next scene, of course, is the skeleton driver driving into the race and ruining it. And not only is he ramming cars off the road, but he also takes over the controls of Fred's car somehow? Magically. Wait, what do you mean? Like, So remember when the skeleton driver put a little device inside of Fred's car? Oh, uh, yeah. That now somehow is able to control the steering wheel. No, I've got one of those. <laughs> Question. Yes. So he's taking out cars left and right. Is Ricky's car still driving out there? We don't get to see exactly which ones are getting knocked away, but the only cars that get knocked are not Ricky's car, not the kid's dad's car, not Burr's car, and not Fred's. So all of the important characters, basically the suspects, their cars are fine. Okay. But other cars get roughed up. Okay. In an effort to try to save Fred, Velma, Daphne, Shaggy, and Scooby hop into Ricky's car because Ricky pulled over his car into the pit and they get into his car and they start driving it. Here's something suspicious. I don't know much about NASCAR, but uh, this car has four seats in it and I'm pretty sure NASCAR cars only have the one seat for the driver to make the car as light as possible. Maybe this is why Ricky isn't winning any races because he's got a four-seat car, but the whole gang is able to fit in Ricky's car. No, dude, you didn't know, like... Dale Earnhardt Jr. was driving a four-seater. He, like, he drove the car to the race, and then he drove back and, like, picked his kids up from soccer <laughs> practice after the race. Same car. They have to be able to fit their families. <laughs> it's got trunk space. And car seats, groceries, everything. Heated seats. They recline. All the features. Low APR for the car loan. <laughs> JD Powered Associates give it great crash test safety ratings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so they're getting into Ricky's car. Ricky's not assessed. We, we never get to see Ricky. We just see that his car is empty and they hop into his empty car in the pit and chase after it. Oh, okay. So he's not driving. Yes. One of the gang just takes his car. Velma is driving. Yeah, Velma hops in. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So this chasing starts. I will note that the music for this chasing is from Smash Mouth, which makes this perfect. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Wait, what song is it? It's one of their lesser known songs. It's not All Star. It's not Walking on the Sun and it's not All Star. <laughs> so wait, when you were watching this, did you like look up the sound credits or are you like... No, I just know Smash Mouth. Wow. Well done. You can just tell. I had a Smash Mouth album back in the uh, Walkman days. God, I haven't thought about Smash Mouth in years. You're welcome. <laughs> so they're able to save Fred because Shaggy in this chase scene broke the little device that the skeleton driver had put in. So they are all able to be safe and the race starts back up again after this. And then a couple <laughs> laps later, the skeleton driver comes back, you know, because Florida. So they just decided, oh, yep, okay, he's gone. Let's start the race again. Yeah, you're also allowed if somebody vacates their car in a NASCAR race, I actually know this, to go into their car from someone else's crew. You're allowed to do this and you can drive their car in the race and you get the prize money if you win. <laughs> it's real. Going to give Johnny a bonus point for a very helpful NASCAR rule uh, update and just sharing good knowledge. I'm a big NASCAR <laughs> fan. 
Big NASCAR. I'm not a big NASCAR fan. I've never watched. So Velma is able to set up this trap. She changes the device that Fred used to make the RV portions of the mystery machine work, uses that to stop the skeleton driver. And it turns out that the skeleton driver is a robot. Oh, God. And then the next part basically gives away who is behind the skeleton driver. So I'm going to turn it over to the two of you. Who was controlling the robotic skeleton driver? Oh, my God. So I want to tell you, before you told me the skeleton driver was a robot, which is a huge bummer. Yeah. I was convinced the skeleton driver was... Jimmy and Cindy in a trench coat, basically, like <laughs> doing the whole three kids in a trench coat thing where it's both of them and one of them is standing on the other shoulders. I'm really bummed that it's not that. What I will say is that part of the reveal is you see someone standing holding a remote control thing. So someone was remote controlling the robot. It is, from the silhouette from afar, the size of a full-sized adult, but then they reveal who is behind it. I don't want to give it away any further, but there is someone using a remote control to control the robot driver. So it is still possible that it could be Jimmy and Cindy. I don't want you to rule them out just because he's a robot. Hmm. Well, okay. So I'm going to walk through my thoughts. I still think it's Jimmy and Cindy, and I'll I'll get to why. I think that Mike Fury Road was... (laughs) Mad Mike Fury Road. (laughs) He was such a dick the whole time that I think he's the red herring. And then I think that Bill Burr Batson, (laughs) I don't think he was like relevant enough. I think he was just like too obvious as a rival. The reason I think it's Jimmy and Cindy is I think that they do know a lot about driving. I think that one of them was working the pedals with their hands Mm -hmm. and that Crash Dummy was sitting in the front seat while the other one operated the robot. Okay, okay. Megan, how about you? I... Seriously had a similar thought process in that I'm thinking like, okay, the dad of Jimmy and Cindy ignored on the road and you only see the silhouette. So the crash dummy to me was like, okay, that's the dad. We haven't met the dad, right? But at the same time, God, I don't know. So the first scene you see Champ Truman getting attacked by the skeleton driver? You do. Okay. So it's probably not him. (laughs) I mean, it could be. We learned that the skeleton driver is a robot, so... But nobody else sees the skeleton driver attack him? Or is that during a race? It's just a time trial. The only people you see are him and his crew chief guy, and then attack. Okay. I actually think it's Bugs Meanie. That's because we're in Florida, so I think it's Bugs Meanie. The crossover event. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Oh... I, I'm going to guess Mike Fieri Fury. Okay. Mad Mike Fieri Road. Mad Mike Exactly. <laughs> I'm very excited to announce that Johnny is correct. And Johnny, <laughs> not only are you correct, but you were more correct than your wildest dreams could have ever imagined because you notice how I said it was a silhouette of people that looked like just one person controlling it. It was two kids inside of a racing outfit. No with- way! Cindy on top of Jimmy's shoulder. They remove the helmet and take off the thing. And it's Cindy and Jimmy, Jimmy on Cindy's shoulders. They each have a remote control thing. One of them was controlling the robot and the other one was controlling the race car. Holy shit. So is the dad a fictional character? There is no dad. There's no father. (laughs) Where are these parents? They they don't have parents. They spawn. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's how evil they are. But yes, I've given Johnny three points for getting it right and a bonus point for mentioning the two kids in a trench coat because it basically was that. Holy shit, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I'm so happy. I could quit. <laughs> so at the end of this first round, Johnny takes a five to one lead. This episode of Meddling Adults is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I like to work out when I can in my free time, and after a workout, I usually have a protein shake. And protein shakes, for the most part, aren't very good tasting. They aren't something that I necessarily look forward to drinking. But if you wanted to get a fair share of protein into your body, and you wanted to do it in a way that wouldn't make you sad, but would actually taste good and make you happy, and then also feel good in your heart and your body, you could have a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal. Magic Spoon cereal has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's also only 140 calories per serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and it tastes good on top of all of those good things. And I've got very exciting news. Magic Spoon will be releasing two amazing new flavors this month for a limited time only. These two flavors are cookies and cream and maple waffle. And if that's not the ultimate comfort food but cereal version of it combination possible, I don't really know what is. It's the ultimate treat-yourself situation, but you're treating yourself in a way that makes you feel like you're having an indulgent dessert without all of the downsides of a sugar-filled dessert. And beyond these limited edition flavors, you can build your own box, you can make a custom bundle with their wide variety of flavors from cocoa to fruity to frosted to peanut butter to cinnamon. And if you're listening from Canada, Magic Spoon now ships to you as well. Hooray! So you can go to magicspoon.com meddling to grab the new limited edition cookies and cream, maple waffle, or a custom bundle of cereal to try today. And be sure to use our promo code meddling at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is now good anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, but only when you use that code meddling at checkout. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 100% guarantee, so if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com meddling and use the code meddling to save $5 off. And thanks, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. If something's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp is here for you. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist that you can start communicating with in under 48 hours. You can send them a message at any time. They will reply in a timely manner with a thoughtful response. You can schedule weekly or video phone sessions, and you'll never have to deal with commuting to a therapist's office or sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room or any of those bad things that come along with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is available worldwide, and they are committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so it is easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. If you want to hear reviews of what people are saying about BetterHelp, you can go to betterhelp.com slash reviews. And if you go to betterhelp.com slash meddling, that is betterhelp.com slash meddling, you can get 10% off your first month. Special offer for being a meddling adults listener. You'll get 10% off your first month if you go to betterhelp.com slash meddling and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. So talk to someone if you need it. Go to betterhelp.com slash meddling and get 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp, for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to the show. We now move into our second mystery, which is called Pompeii and Circumstance. Oh my no God. Way. Mm-hmm. Actually, a pun this time. <laughs> So we're in Italy, of course, we're in Pompeii, and tourists get attacked by a gladiator. I will say that one of the tourists, when getting chased by a gladiator, says, 
it's a gladiator and he's still alive. <laughs> Which is a great thing to yell. <laughs> <laughs> it's Russell Crowe. <laughs> it's definitely not someone dressed as a gladiator. It is an ancient gladiator who is still alive. Hundred percent. So we cut to the gang eating gelato, walking around Italy, making great choices. While they're walking around, Fred points out a modern skyscraper in the middle of this old school village. So it's like old building, old building, old building skyscraper. And he thinks it's very interesting that the modern will be mixed with the ancient in Italy. And Shaggy goes, yeah, kind of like the stuff in my fridge. Which oh is <laughs> pretty God. good joke. The food waste is bad. Come on, Shaggy. Winks at the camera. Clean your Tupperware, Shaggy. Modern mixed with ancient, kind of like my exes. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Don't make me take away points from you. <laughs> I'm playing with house money at this point. <laughs> so Daphne points out some ancient statues that she sees, and this Italian businessman starts mansplaining to Daphne. Why does Daphne always get mansplained to? Because she's pretty, and that's what happens. That's the world. Yeah. So... She starts talking about this ancient statue. This old Italian man explains statues to her. And she's like, yeah, chief, I get it. I'm familiar with the statue. What, how does he mansplain statues? <laughs> she, while Fred is talking about ancient stuff, she goes, oh, yeah, like these ancient statues, like such wonderful history that we can learn. And the guy's like, yeah, there's artifacts all over the city. They're from our ancestors. They're from a time before. It's like, yes, we get it. Statues are old. Like, that's how they work. Oh. And they're a tribute <laughs> to our heritage. And we shouldn't take them down. Even if people offended. <laughs> He's basically explaining the concept of a ruin. Yeah, okay. So she wonders what kind of ruins are under this skyscraper. And this guy says, oh no, there's no ruins under this skyscraper because Italian law prohibits building on top of archaeological sites. And Velma says, well, there's probably stuff throughout the entire city. That doesn't make any sense. And this guy says, not for this company, and this company is the Scungimondo Corporation. They are the largest construction company in Italy, and apparently they're a construction company that constructs large buildings in old Italian cities. That's their deal, but he says they never build on lands that are archaeological sites. Their record is clean. Hmm. So this guy, initially, incredibly suspicious to me. Yeah, do we know anything about him? Like, does he work for them or no? We don't know anything about him. He doesn't even have a name, but he does have a mustache. Ooh, thank God. <laughs> So we get this Italian montage of the gang doing all the touristy things. They go to all the monuments and stuff. So then they end up at the Trevi Fountain in Rome. Across the street from the Trevi Fountain, and this is fictional, there is a Scungimondo Hotel across the street. <laughs> there is not. There is not. So the gang is about to take a train over to Naples, but... Daphne alerts them that they can't take their train. Their scheduled train ride got canceled because of a conductor strike. So hell yeah, conductor union, fighting for your rights. I'm here for it. Let's freaking go. <laughs> Don't y'all cross that picket line. <laughs> so the only way that they can get to Naples is by talking with someone who sails a garbage cruise liner ship, like a big waste ship. This guy's named Captain Guzman. Like an actual garbage, like they're transporting garbage? Yeah, like big masses of garbage, like dumpsters worth. And they're shipping it to somewhere else? Naples? I get. I well, he's not going to Naples. He says that he's going to Pompeii and he will gladly drop them off in Naples because, you know, it's on the way. So... 
<laughs> Daphne asks, why are you going to Pompeii? There's no garbage in Pompeii. People don't live there. And he says, I have, and then a pause, other business. Mm. A little suspicious. But then he adds on and says, as long as the gladiator doesn't show up. And then, of course, the gang asks about the gladiator. So he explains that the gladiator survived Pompeii as a zombie and now wreaks havoc on the town at night. Wreaks havoc how? By being a gladiator. (laughs) Asking people (laughs) if they're entertained or not. The thing we saw in the intro was that he rides a chariot at very high speeds and scares away tourists. That's what we've seen based on the intro. That's his MO. I gotta make the point that most gladiators, when they were gladiating, were naked. (laughs) This guy, not. He's wearing armor. Don't worry. So I'm already convinced that he's not a zombie because if he was a zombie, he would be nude. (laughs) So Fred, of course, says, guys, we gotta go. So they're gonna go to Pompeii with Captain Guzman. When they arrive at Pompeii, they are greeted by Alexandra Vigi, who is the head of the tourism department in Pompeii. And she agrees to take the gang on a tour. So they get in one of those multi-row golf cart tram things, and they're driving around. She's showing them some of the sights. And then the gang starts to ask her about the gladiator. And she tries to downplay it, saying it's just a myth, it's just a rumor. She then goes on to say that Pompeii isn't necessarily closed at night, but people are discouraged from being out unless it's for a good reason. And Shaggy, to Scooby, but really to the viewer at home, says, I wonder if meddling is high on the list of good reasons. So the gang then tries to enter a set of Pompeii ruins at night, but they are stopped by a security guard named Ugo Di Rinaldi. Love the names. Ugo Di Rinaldi says that they cannot enter the ruins and tries to point to a sign in Italian, but the gang has a travel book and they're able to translate the sign. And at the very bottom of the sign, it says that it's always open to the public. So they are allowed to go in. They have thwarted Ugo. Ooh, he tried to trick them. Mm-hmm, he did. <sighs> so they go into the ruins. While they're walking in, he warns them. He says, I'm warning you, things could get, and I quote, a very uh, scary. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Like, I really don't want to be offensive, but all of the Italian accents that they do in this are very much like, I'm Ugo Dia Rinaldi. Oh, I'm the security guard. Like, it's not great. (laughs) Oh, my God. Not at all offensive. No, not ideal. So the gang hears what sounds like a crowd of people in Pompeii's Colosseum. So they enter to try to see what's up. But when they get inside, they see that it's empty except for the gladiator. Dun, dun, dun. Fred, in a heroic move, gets the gang away to safety and then tries to distract the gladiator from attacking them by challenging him to a fight. What? Yeah, I mean, it works. In his taunting, Fred says, I should warn you, I can bench press 220, which is impressive. That's two plates on each side. Like, that's a pretty good bench press from a boy Fred. That is extremely impressive. Also... Would Zombie Gladiator from Pompeii Times know what a bench press is? (laughs) Probably not. Does Fred bench press in his ascot, you think? He doesn't wear an ascot in this 2002 reboot, which is a shame. What? (laughs) Is it even Fred? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's actually his twin brother, Ted. (laughs) So before the Gladiator can attack again, the Gladiator takes a knee and you hear from up in the box seats announcements made by a very ghostly looking figure. He's in this robe with a hood and he's silhouetted. He introduces himself as Caesar Saladicus. And he (laughs) is apparently in charge of this gladiator fight between the gladiator and Fred. What the fuck? Caesar Salad. (laughs) Yeah, Caesar Saladicus. It's pretty great. The names that they do in this show are fantastic, but yeah, his name is Caesar Salad. (laughs) A2, Fred. (laughs) 
so the gladiator fights Fred. He has him trapped and then looks to Caesar Saladicus for the thumbs up, thumbs down. Caesar gives a thumbs down, which I took line in high school. And apparently this is a trope that the movies and everything have gotten wrong. According to history, thumbs up is usually what was given to go ahead with the kill, which I think is infinitely funnier than thumbs down. <laughs> like you're turning to the Caesar to see kind of kill this guy. And he's like, yeah, dude, go for it. <laughs> you're good. Like that's so much better. <laughs> Just as he's about to get attacked, Daphne comes in on that tour tram. She drives in Tokyo Drift style, scoops up Fred, scoops up the gang, and then they storm off. But the gladiator chases them on his chariot. Big chasing happens. They go from being on the tram to being on boats. The gladiator chases them on boats, but they escape to Naples. Wait, a boat, uh, like a chariot on a boat? He gets onto a boat as well, yes. <laughs> but I it would have been cooler if he got into a little boat that was pulled by seahorses <laughs> and <laughs> goes through the water. King Triton style, for sure. Megan gets a bonus point for the King Triton reference. Wonderful stuff, two to five. <laughs> So it's the next day in Naples, and the gang is eating at Scunjo Mondi Restaurant, which Velma finds to be a bit fishy because she says that two years ago, she was on a trip to Naples with, I guess, friends or her college. We'll never know what age these people are. <laughs> but she was on a trip, and she says, wait, we were here, and they did an archaeological dig here, <gasps> so... There's no reason that this restaurant should be here. So she is very concerned. In a turn of all events, you thought that ghostly Caesar salad was the biggest plot twist. The next thing that happens, Mount Vesuvius erupts. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! So the gang does what is the only natural conclusion. They all get on mopeds and they moped over to Pompeii. Towards the volcano. When they are driving, they go into those same ruins where the Colosseum and everything was before. They pass by Ugo and he tries to yell at them. He is wearing a neck brace, which is interesting. Interesting, but they never really address this. They just drive by him, they get into the ruins, and they start to set a plan. Did Fred have the gladiator in the headlock? Or was it the other way around? Other way around. Gladiator had Fred dead to rights. Fred, Fred rights. to rights, if you will. I beat you to it. <laughs> so the gang does a classic Shaggy and Scooby live bait trap, which works. There's a chase scene. It ends up with the gang mopeding into the water and then getting saved by Captain Guzman, who was there again with his trash boat. And he is surprised to hear from them that they saw the gladiator. He says that it's not safe. They should just leave. And then Daphne asks, well, why do you keep coming back if it's not safe? And again, he says, it's my business. So <laughs> he then kind of tries to hide some stuff that was on his boat. There's like an old candelabra, but he tries to convince them that it was just junk. Lumiere! <laughs> yes, he does hide Lumiere. The candelabra's like, oh, what? No! <laughs> Giving Megan a bonus point for the Lumiere. So Guzman drops them off in Naples, and they rent a Manjarati car, not a Maserati car, a Manjarati car to get around in. <laughs> Fred tries to drive it, but he has no idea how to drive a stick shift, so Daphne has to drive it, because, of course, Daphne knows how, because she's perfect in this series. I do find it very surprising. There's no way the Mystery Machine is an automatic. Are you kidding me? The Mystery Machine has to be a manual. There's no way. Oh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, that thing is ancient. Exactly. So they drive this Manjarati back into Pompeii. They meet up with Alexandra Vigi, who starts to give them a walking tour 
you know, up the erupting volcano. What the hell is going on? As one does. But when they start to mention that they hope to see the gladiator and figure out what's going on, she goes, excuse and gets very scared and instantly changes her tune and says that they shouldn't go any further. It's not safe. They should just go down. So she flips the script and immediately wants to get them to not walk any further. But they press on, she storms off, and when they get to the top, they see that lava is rising out of Mount Vesuvius. And also inside Mount Vesuvius is a bunch of old-school artifacts. While they're trying to figure out what's going on, they see Captain Guzman driving a dump truck, like a garbage truck, and he dumps some artifacts into this pit. But before they can confront him about this, the gladiator attacks them. Fred is able to tackle the gladiator and says, et tu doofus, and then unmasks the gladiator. Wow, give Fred a fucking bonus point. (laughs) Yeah, Fred is now tied with me for third place with one point. We then get the reveal of who is behind the gladiator. So we at least know Captain Guzman is involved, but I turn to the two of you. Who is his accomplice? Who's the gladiator? I don't know, but Captain Guzman is Caesar salad, I think. Ooh, okay. I just want to say... That one time I saw Newfound Glory in concert (laughs) and the band that opened was called Trash Boat and they were really bad. And when you said Guzman drives a trash boat, that reminded me of that. That's the first thing I want to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've got a bonus point for that story. Very important. Wow. Yeah, I don't deserve that. The second thing I want to say is if you close your eyes, does it always feel like nothing changed at all? That's from the song Pompeii by Bastille. <laughs> I'd forgot that song existed. I'm so upset. <laughs> Don't give me a bonus point for that because I didn't deserve the other one. Yeah, there you go. It evens out. You've got a collective bonus point for the two things. <laughs> As for my guess, now that I've built up to this, I have no idea. I'm going to go with Guzman has been stealing from these archaeological digs that they're doing at the ruins for the company. So like Guzman takes the artifacts that they dig up and then the company goes in and builds on top of it. And I think that someone from the company, the first person that we saw, the guy who we never knew his name, I think that guy is the gladiator and he's trying to scare people off of these sites so that Guzman can raid them before they tear him down and build a skyscraper or a restaurant or whatever. Gotcha, gotcha. Cool. What about you, Megan? I'm going to say it's Alexandra. Okay. I feel like if she's a tour guide, she would know about the ruins that, you know, Scoonji Mongo is is building on, and she would probably be pretty upset about that. However, if she's part of the corporation, then she can, like, pretend they don't exist and steer people away from those regions. Okay. Well, I'm very happy to say that you are both correct about what was going on with Scoonji Mondo Corporation. But unfortunately, you were both wrong about who the gladiator is. The gladiator was Ugo. But you were both right. It's the exact situation of they are trying to clear out the artifacts and they're trying to dump them in so that they can build on the places, blah, blah, blah. But Ugo was the accomplice here. He turns out to be the vice president of Scoonji Mondo Corporation. So that's how he got into the mix there. What the fuck? He couldn't send somebody to go be security guard? gladiator. That is an interesting move for a VP. But I am going to give out bonus points because first off, Megan, you were right in that Guzman was Caesar Salad. Yeah. Caesar Saladicus. You were correct. 
Johnny, you're getting a Misery Loves Company bonus point because my guess was that it was creepy mustache guy from the beginning. And then you get the two points for getting the everything except for who was the gladiator, correct? First round, who did you think it was? I thought it was Mike Freerod. Oh, you should get a bonus point for that. You're correct. Yes! So the score is nine to seven as we get into our final mystery, Big Scare in the Big Easy. Oh, that's right. We've got a New Orleans-themed mystery on What's New Scooby-Doo. Mardi Gras! Mardi Gras! Yeah. So the first scene we see is a tour bus getting stuck in the mud near a cemetery. While this tour bus is trying to get out of the mud, these big Civil War-era-looking ghosts have what looks like a wind fight with each other. There's one that is dressed as the North, one is the South, and they are throwing gusts of wind back and forth and causing a big scene. And then we cut to the gang in New Orleans for spring break. So they're specifically there for Mardi Gras spring break, which again makes me feel like the gang is in college, but we'll never know. But what a choice. My girlfriend will be furious if I don't talk about this and she listens to it. So I'm going to talk about it. She grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and would like all of your listeners to know that Mardi Gras originated in Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans adopted it from Mobile, Alabama. I don't know if that's true, but that's her claim. Interesting. Fun, fun, fun. Well, the gang is headed to their hotel, the Leland Gables Hotel. They cut through a cemetery. It's a shortcut. They get attacked by those same ghosts from the intro, and they are saved by the tour bus driver from before. He turns out to be a very Cajun man named Crawdad Mike. Of course he is. Of course he is. (laughs) So he says that the Leland brothers are these ghosts. They were on opposite sides of the Civil War, and they had a duel way back when in the family graveyard. And now every night they haunt the graveyard and have this fight. So this is what this wind fight was. I guess it was to simulate their duel. So when you say ghosts, do you mean like they're floating and look like ghosts or are they like walking on earth? In Scooby-Doo, I would say there's a whole genre of bad guy called Phantom, which is walking on ground person that looks like a ghost, but could very conceivably and then usually is someone in disguise. But I will say that for part of the wind fight, one that we saw in the intro, they were flying. So it's a bit unclear if it's people or maybe something else to make them look like they're flying. Or CGI. Right. There could be, you know, there's sometimes it's projector screens and stuff like that. So they do fly at some point. I'm spooked. Crawdad Mike drops them off at their hotel and in the lobby, (laughs) they hear... It's a very normal name. Come on. Crawdad Mike. (laughs) Crawdad Mike drops them off in their hotel. In the lobby, they hear two people arguing. These two people are Cyrus Buford, who is voiced by Jim Cummings, the voice of Winnie the Pooh, (gasps) Tigger, Ed from The Lion King. This guy is like an elite voice actor, and he's just voicing a suspect in Scooby-Doo? What the fuck? I know! What a pull! Cyrus what? Cyrus Buford. Cyrus Buford is arguing with Lorelai Leland. She is in charge of this Leland Hotel. And their argument is about Cyrus trying to convince Lorelai to sell a plot of land to him for his resort. She sends him off because she has guests. She brings them to the room and she explains to the gang that Cyrus wants to buy the family graveyard, that plot of land, and he wants to expand the Rivergate, which is his hotel slash water park 
combo. Ooh. Sounds a lot better than a haunted graveyard. Yep. And then you could take a water slide to the continental breakfast. What's not to love? Wait, question. Do they ever actually like get called to solve the mystery or are they always like just there? Nah, they're always just there. There is a few episodes where they know like a professor and then it shows up in the old episodes of Scooby-Doo. That'll happen in these newer ones. They're usually on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) They just live their life on vacation, solving mysteries and like not getting paid for it, I guess. It's a living. So they get set up in their rooms and a large dude enters. His name is Taylor Leland. He is Lorelai's brother. And Daphne notes that he has muddy shoes, which they find a bit suspicious. Cemetery was muddy, etc. So the gang goes to check out the cemetery. Daphne gets the same mud on her shoes, and they decide to go over to Crawdad Mike to see if he knows anything about this situation. So they visit Crawdad Mike, they show him the shoe, and he says, that isn't mud, that's ectoplasm, like from a ghost. And Velma goes, okay, Crawdad Mike, and then they leave. Man, Crawdad (laughs) Mike is just like incredibly on brand. Yeah, yeah. I keep picturing the Firefly character from The Princess and the Frog as Crawdad Mike. I could see it. And also, Jim Cummings was in Princess and the Frog. <laughs> Please tell me he's Ray. Yes, he is the voice of Ray. <gasps> that is the guy! No, yes! We've come full circle! Yes! <laughs> yes! Oh, fantastic. So we cut to the gang at dinner. They are, of course, eating gumbo. Oh, not crawdads. No, they're, well, maybe it was crawfish gumbo. Who's to say? Uh, well, actually, I'm to say because Shaggy and Scooby say that they are eating ice cream, mushroom, pizza, milkshake gumbo, which makes me feel like they ordered gumbo and then they also ordered the other stuff and then Shaggy and Scooby put it all in. I have no idea. It's not how gumbo works. I worked at Papado Seafood Kitchen. This is impossible. You can't have ice cream in a hot soup. That's just cream. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you've removed the ice. You've created cream. (laughs) While they're eating their gumbo, they see Lorelai enter a building called the Supermarket of the Supernatural, and she buys bat wings, chicken bones, and the eye of a toad. So uh, she a witch doctor? Maybe. They then decide they should go to Buford's Water Park Resort to see if they can find any clues. And on their way there, they do see Taylor walking through the graveyard, Taylor Leland walking through the graveyard with an old Civil War uniform in hand. Hmm. So they get to Buford's Water Park. Of course, they get chased by the Civil War ghosts. There is some incredible Cajun music that they play during it. It's really solid stuff. Very New Orleans brassy. And they eventually are able to escape from the ghosts. They run into Cyrus Buford. He yells at them for running around his water park resort at night, but then he says that his entire staff was scared off, so he can't open the resort and water park because no one is there to work it. So that is him being frustrated at the situation, and at this point, the gang realizes that Daphne is gone, so the ghosts kidnap Daphne, and they didn't notice initially. They're terrible friends. Wait, so no one's mansplained anything to her this episode, though? No, no. She's just gotten just kidnapped. kidnapped. Okay, okay. <laughs> What's better? Who knows? Who's to say? <laughs> so the gang goes back to the graveyard and they split up. Fred and Velma find that if you sit on a rock in the graveyard, there's some strobe lights that go off in a tree. So they find that to be a bit suspicious. Shaggy and Scooby are trying to find Daphne. Shaggy thinks, I should call Daphne's phone. She always answers her phone. They call it, they hear it ring, and she's inside a mausoleum, you know, one of those big graves with a door, and they see through the crack that she's in, so they open the door to try to let her in, but the door has been rigged to shut right behind them, so they also get trapped, but thankfully, Daphne is able to break them out by using a combination 
of Scooby's dog collar and eyelash curlers like she's MacGyver and she breaks out of the mausoleum. It's awesome. Daffy's like, don't worry, y'all. I've been here before. I love it. It's great. She's fantastic. So Fred and Velma set up a trap and they are able to chase down the ghosts, get them trapped, take off their masks, and they do the reveal. So I turn to the two of you. Who is behind these Civil War ghosts? Wow. I am probably most clueless on this one. The one thing I will say, the only person that didn't really get a speaking line but was here is that Crawdad Mike doesn't drive the tour bus. He just leads the tour, like one of those microphone people. So there also is a driver of tour bus that is separate from Crawdad Mike. Hmm. But we've got Crawdad Mike, his driver, Buford, and then the two Lelands, Lorelai and Taylor. Okay. I think it's Lorelai, Leland. I mean, I feel like Taylor's involved, but I feel like Lorelai is the mastermind behind the ghosts. I think she's intentionally haunting the plot of land in hopes that it drives Cyrus Buford away from wanting it, which clearly has worked because none of his employees want to go on it, but he's still fighting to buy that plot of land. And she doesn't want him to have it because it's a hotel competition, right? I mean, yeah, she that could be a very logical thing for her to want. Okay. And you have to assume that they're saying that it's like the Leland brothers ghosts that are there. Like maybe her ancestors are buried there, which is why she doesn't want to sell it. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Also, you know, she doesn't want to sell it because she doesn't want a competitive hotel right next to hers that has a water park because she will lose. (laughs) So all that is where my head went to. I feel like it's too in front of my face. I feel like I I need to find some missing thing that like proves that it's not that. So I'm not going to guess that, even though that was where my head went at first. I think perhaps Crawdad Mike really is a Nyolinser through and through. And Did you say Nyolinser? I said Nyolins. Oh, New Orleans. <laughs> Nolins. <laughs> Nolinser, gotcha, gotcha. And I think that he wouldn't want sacred land to be desecrated by yet another capitalist venture. And so he is orchestrating the whole thing, which is why he's so particular about like, oh, that's not mud, that's ectoplasm, because he knows that it's indeed some sketchy thing named ectoplasm. This is a bad guess, but I think that is my final answer. Okay, well, it's not a bad guess because you're right. It was Crawdad Mike and his bus driver. They were the two people, but you you gave Crawdad Mike too much credit because the reason he wanted to do it is because he has a ghost tour business, basically. So if you get rid of the creepy graveyard, that gets rid of a key portion of his business. So the whole situation with the rock in the graveyard is that the tour bus would drive over it. It would cue these lights and then the driver would get out and do dry ice to make a smoke screen for the lights to project onto. And that would create the ghosts. And that's also what's made the mud is because when dry ice goes from solid to gas, it makes a little bit of a residue, like you get a little liquid condensation underneath, hence making the mud not really ectoplasm. Oh, my goodness. So I did give you two points because you got the culprit right, but you you were too generous to him. But Johnny, that means you've won this episode of Meddling Adults. Wow. You have earned some money for the Houston Food Bank. How does it feel to reign victorious? It feels much better than those poor Union soldiers did when they had to lose their leg and had to (laughs) have a bunch of whiskey to deal with that. (laughs) But 
Megan, it was still a fun time. You fought valiantly. It was a pleasure to have both of you on the show. This is normally the portion, since my guests are typically podcasters, where they promote their own stuff. Is there anything that the two of you would like to promote in this time where we normally uh, let people do so? I mean, was it really at Ludo Bagman every time? Or Ah, a bonus point for a great reference. Now you've only lost 11 to 8. <laughs> See, it was so close. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But now scoring is closed. No more pandering. <laughs> Darn it. I was just going to pander. <laughs> I just want to say, if we're still dealing with this pandemic, keep being smart and being safe. And we're almost through it. So we can do it, team. Good note to end on. Well, Johnny and Megan, thank you so much for joining. Listeners, thank you for listening. And I got to say, you guys were on top of the ball. Good with the guesses. Good with the suspects and the motives. You two truly were some competent meddling adults. Oh, I do have to point out, when Jimmy and Cindy got caught, they said we would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling grown-ups because they're kids. And that was the closest we've ever been to them saying meddling adults in an episode of Scooby-Doo. Go! I was so excited. It was so yeah. close. You got to change the name of your podcast now. To Meddling Grown-Ups. Meddling Grown-Ups is way catchier. <laughs> Until then, the two of you are two wonderful meddling adults. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Meddling Adults. Meddling Adults is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schubert. Our editor is Brandon Grugel. The art is by Ma'ayan Atias and Kelly Schubert. The music is by Bettina Campamanes and Brandon Grugel. And the website is by me and Kelly Schubert. If you're enjoying the show, if you could tell someone about it or leave a rating online or post about it on social media, all of those things would help. And if you want to help the show monetarily, you want to help us raise more money for charity, you can do that in a number of ways. The first of which is heading over to patreon.com slash meddlingadults. You can join and give to us monthly. We'll put your name on the website. We'll give you bonus audio. You'll get access to episodes earlier than the public. All sorts of fun stuff lives there at patreon.com slash meddlingadults. But if you can't give monthly and you still want to give, you can do so at paypal.me slash meddlingadults and you can give a one-time donation. If you want to follow the show on social media, you can do so at Meddling Adults on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can go to reddit.com slash r slash meddlingadults. Our website, meddlingadults.com, has more information about the show itself. We'll also soon be adding more information about all of the money that we've raised over the course of these seasons. And finally, thank you to Multitude for having us as a part of the collective. If you want to listen to some other podcasts, maybe the ones that I work on, like Potterless or Horse, or all the other shows, you can check all of that out at multitude.productions. Thanks again so much for listening. Make sure you are subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app so that you don't miss a single episode and that next episode will be coming out next wednesday so we'll see you there for the next episode of meddling adults